Yes, George. And then we we'll read Jeff in Hebrews 4 shortly. At some point, when it fits either this chapter or later, um, I saw a friend who was very blessed by um, the author who did the shack in the movie. Uh-huh. I know he slipped into universalism. That, that school of thought, which bridge that leads to nowhere ultimately, uh, just briefly, which one are they? Is that ransom or that's moral influence is theory or is it a, I think I think they I don't know that they have a specific theory that they hold on to. They they would ascribe to the view that love wins, always wins. It never loses. So I, I would challenge our group. Let's pray for that guy and I think maybe we'll elect either Gene or Floyd or Nancy and Brad to go after this guy and bring him back into the you know, closer in the fold. Because universal and it's, it's sweeter, but it's just not true, you know. So. Well, it, it isn't just not true. It avoids, I mean, it, it cancels our human freedom. Right, yeah. I, you know, the, the, the devil's so good at mixing a little air with, with some truth, because it is true that love is more powerful than hate. Is yeah. it not? Right. And that love will win over evil every time? Yeah. But we still have the freedom to say no to love. And absolutely, absolutely. love is not genuine. I, I sometimes wonder, and I haven't, um, with the Shack and a few others, um, you know, because I listen to Richard Rohr and, and a bunch of other people, and I would be what I call a conditional universalist. Um, so from God's perspective, everyone's in. We're opted in already, but we can always, by choice, leave. Uh, or exit. So it's, um, this is how I would describe it. So some of them, when push comes to shove, might be willing to say it's conditional. Richard Rohr does, but he doesn't use that language. But push comes to shove and he'll say, well, you know, human freedom being what it is, but why would you choose, uh, you know, uh, to go against love and the draw of love? <laughs> but I know a lot and, of people who would. <clears throat> and yeah, no, I, and the hard part. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that that is a reality that that is difficult to deny. Well, it's becoming clearer. We have so much more manifestations of hate in our society than we had before. It used to be that hate was kind of kept under wraps, and and it's like that venostasis ulcer we were talking about. Uh, it was just not revealed until somebody I, was able to give it voice. Yeah, I've got a a patient that I actually oversee for care coordinations. I, I work at the uh, Palo Alto VA as part of the trauma recovery program. I'm a psychologist. Uh, mm. And I get the opportunity to see some of that kind of play out. Um, right now I'm doing care coordination with a guy based on his past history. He's extremely suspicious and I'll use the word paranoid lightly, but I will see how different residents will be like trying to reach out, trying to build bridges. Um, and he might tentatively accept, but also it just keeps coming back to, so what do they want from me? What do they want out of me? And so I, I, I kind of see that struggle of when love is extended or when, you know, care is being extended, how that can still be like turned down or at least a cause for anxiety rather than peace. I always hear C.S. Lewis, and so it, it ends up in the back of my mind that I'm a very poor judge of who's being drawn to love and who's resisting love. Mm-hmm. That, um, and I may have the story wrong, but I think it comes out of mere Christianity, 
that an atheist friend was critiquing Christianity based on the witchiness of a little old lady who was a Christian. And, and I remember reading something along the lines that Lewis said, well, what we don't know is what would she be without God? And yeah, I always hesitate to uh, ascribe a direction to any person because <laughs> somebody can describe that to me and go, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think we, we will find in the millennium or the great, great hereafter that um, we'll be surprised by people who have, who, who are present with us and those who we thought should be, but aren't. And I think there's a lot to discover. Right. I think, I think your view is captured by Ellen White in, uh, in the great, in Desire of Ages, not the great controversy, Desire of Ages, the chapter is finished. She calls the wicked, the rejectors of his mercy. Mm. Now, if you reject it long enough and harden your heart long enough against love, there eventually comes a place where you go that no one can enter. Well, doesn't that reflect God's heart? He's not willing that any should perish. Mm -hmm. And how can I give you up? How can I let you go? It's he doesn't, not... he doesn't leave people. No. They leave him. Exactly. And he goes after them. <laughs> he yep. chases them down time and time again. But when they absolutely refuse any longer to listen to him, that's when he starts crying. Yeah. I think he actually cries a lot more before mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A big one we have, we have a church member who's not doing well in COVID. He's on a ventilator, and the intensivist was almost trying to talk to the family and putting him on a ventilator. So um, anyhow, uh, um, so uh, he's got two kids that are in college, and uh, you know, his wife's, you know, mm -hmm. so tough situation there. And he had another friend whose uh, son had a tragic car accident, 18, and drove Somehow went underneath a 18-wheeler on the freeway, sort of unknown things. So it's just you're always hoping it's not suicide. Maybe it's just texting and driving or something. But um, and those are two local tragedies. And and uh, on a bright note, I'm excited. My son's books with uh, Gigi Grams. So keep that confidential. But she's Billy Graham's oldest daughter. But she has Grant's book, and so pray that she finds the good stuff there. Okay. And I can't. I forget uh, her name again. Gigi. 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 Okay. I think it's a different name that I've seen in print. <laughs> she she says I'm she's the oldest. Says he's I'm the one that Billy loved the long Billy and his, and his mom loved the longest. <laughs> the oldest. <laughs> I'm the youngest, so I can't claim that. So I, anyone's the oldest can at least say, "Hey, that's a cool phrase for you guys." And Graham, and Graham Watt Lots is the ones, and you know Franklin, the ones that are more well known in the world. But yeah. She's the host there at the Cove. But she does not share the views of Franklin. <laughs> really? I don't think so. What else? As I recall, I saw something about that. Just you know, knowing that the older, if my older sibling had new insights on God, I think at least we wanted to listen to him, especially if it may bring him together. That'd be cool if there's a gap yeah. there already. Okay, so we'll pray for Gigi. We'll pray for the families of those they've lost or are losing. Um, potentially losing. It's, it's I, can't, I can't resist another spiritual lesson, the object lesson that we're getting. Uh, in South Dakota, the governor of South Dakota does not believe in COVID as anything serious. And, and hundreds of people are dying.
You say hundreds in South Dakota because it's not highly populated as a state. Um, and hundreds of people are dying. And this one nurse was being interviewed on CNN, and she pointed out that she had patients dying of COVID who kept saying, no, it's not COVID. Uh, it must be pneumonia or it must be, um, it, it must be cancer, lung cancer, but it, it can't be COVID. And when they're actually ready to die, they'll say, I can't believe this. This can't be true. It's not true. This is COVID. One to me, point. that's an object lesson of what a lie can do. Mm, good point. One brief thing, and I think it hopefully can be, avoid both ditches because at least up to this point, we've been blessed. It's nothing like the 1918 flu, uh, Spanish influenza, and uh, where millions in the prime of life without all these health risks because right now it's been the elderly in nursing homes and folks with obesity, diabetes, you usually have to have one or two fairly significant risk factors for the vast majority of people. Now, I got exposed to COVID, so maybe I'll be on a ventilator next week and say, you know, I thought it was pretty healthy. But, you know, so there is vulnerability. But it's, you know, there's Satan's use the fear to potentially, there's more people dying from suicide. And, you know, and there's the economic fall of this could be huge. And, you know, there's the other factors. There's, I think there's definitely been some agendas either to go into total denial or to use it to manipulate people with fear. And, you know, and there's, there's a road between the two. There's a tightrope. You shouldn't have to go to either dish. Be careful because you may not die from it, but you may give it to someone else who will die from it, you know. And, and by the mask, I, I shave my beard because of it and this and that, and I still, I'm mostly using a shield. People with masks in my office sometimes, they touch your face five to ten times every five minutes, they're touching your face all the time. And there's some studies say masks make you more vulnerable. So, you know, it's hard to get the good science now. So it's, it's confusing and people try to be hopefully respectful to others, but also give them some freedom and try to avoid the two ditches. And I'm not trying to be too political, but it's, it's both sides have politicized it. And there is something, there's a fine road in the middle where we need to be careful of and be cognizant and all kinds of things. But you know, it's, it's sad to say there's, there's ugliness on both sides of the ditches. Well, the thing that convinced me to wear a mask is the fact that Asia has been able to keep it un pretty much under control through uh, mm -hmm. keeping social distancing and, and mask wearing. And um, Australia has no new COVID cases, and they say we simply followed the science. Okay. I'm still learning about things. You know, luckily, Australia still I have to, I have to look at the evidence. You yeah. have to look at the evidence, not the claims. All right, that's a good point. Look at the evidence. But what a wonderful opportunity uh, to address fear and freedom because I see fear often manipulating people. Uh, I'm a trauma therapist, work with a lot of fear-based, uh, and it affects how people can see things, just like Alex was commenting on. And I go, we have such great good news about God to say, don't be afraid. And what an opportunity as people deal with their mortality and the reality of, yeah, I could contact this. I could die. You know, what, what's my eternity looking like? What's my view of God? So I think it's, it's uh, you know, a great opportunity for God's love, which takes away fear, mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. um, 
shouted from the rooftops. You, you know, I have asthma, and I can testify that if I get f afraid, mm -hmm. which I did one time, and I went right into an asthma attack <clears throat> because I was I was on my way to uh, Evans Airport bus that would take me to Oakland, where I would get a flight to Orange County down in Southern California. <clears throat> and I remembered that I forgot to pack my inhaler. <laughs> and it was smoky. It was, it was during the 2017 fire so here in Napa Valley. And it was terribly smoky. I shouldn't have been out in it. <laughs> and I, I don't recall that I had a mask at that time. I hadn't yet gotten a, a N95 mask. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, I panicked. I felt in my purse and it wasn't there. And I, I remembered that I probably left it in the bathroom because I was planning to use it. And uh, when I finally got parked at Evans, I managed prayerfully to wait, get there <laughs> safely. And I, I reached into my purse and right where I had been feeling, there it was. I, I think an angel transported it there. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember that because that's the thing you have to keep in mind when you have asthma, not to panic. You are more likely, less likely to have an asthma attack if you don't panic. Emotions play such a huge role in our physiology. Yeah. yeah. So to have that that experience of a fearless relationship with God, where perfect love casts out fear, yeah. has tremendous power to heal and restore and keep us from things. Yeah. Yeah. I always liked what Graham Maxwell said. He said uh, we should fear sin because sin destroys us. But we should never be our gracious God. Right. Exactly. Amen. All right. Um, any Actually, other I've got a couple. Yes. Yeah, I've got a couple prayer requests. Um, so last night, um, me and my fellow postdocs had like a, a virtual happy hour where we just were able to decompress from the past week. Uh, and one of the things that we were talking about was just the continued support that's needed for healthcare workers, mm -hmm. particularly as cases are going up, particularly as beds are becoming scarce, particularly mm -hmm. as more and more patients die. But that takes a toll on the people who work with them. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I'd really like to lift healthcare workers up in prayer as well as postal workers who are probably the busiest that they've ever been because of COVID where everything is being delivered. Uh, no yeah. one's picking up things in store and just thinking like the season is exacerbating a lot of the issues that we were seeing mm -hmm. throughout this year. Mm -hmm. um, and so my, my prayer would be for the support of those who are working diligently and working hard so that the rest of us can live the way we would like to. Um, and I, I guess I also have a praise, um, which is uh, this week I actually had an opportunity to get the part one Pfizer vaccine oh, okay. for COVID. 
uh, as part of my work. So the part two comes in three weeks. Um, but I just want to, I am thankful that that's available and that I'm able to kind of be a part of that. Um, so they're, they're having me monitor, you know, myself, any, any side effects or stuff like that. I haven't felt anything other than, you know, the tenderness on the site where you'd feel if you got like a tetanus shot or something. But mm-hmm. other than that, I'm doing well and I'm hoping that, this is this is going to be part of a rollout to start to curb this. I uh, I'm so glad you were able to get that, and I'm so glad that these uh, are frozen, yeah. so that they don't have preservatives in them. Because uh, I'm I'm sensitive to some of those preservatives, and I'm I'm happy to, that they're as safe as they are. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Um, I have a prayer request too. As I mentioned, uh, Tim and Willa have just taken off and there's a lot of newness to this experience. Uh, Tim and his semi pulling a fifth wheel and hasn't had a lot of practice with taking corners. Like my husband's watching him as they just turn out from our, our cul-de-sac and we're <laughs> a little wider. A little wider you know? And Luella, bless her heart, is driving the van with a motorcycle in tow. And uh, she hasn't driven the van a lot. And so just prayers for them. They're yes. the window, weather window, which we don't always have up here in North Idaho. And but just they didn't sleep very well last night because. Oh, no. Anyway, so just prayers for their I definitely need our prayers. Mm-hmm. And we kept saying, you, you, you've got what you need. You know, you're going to be fine. Don't hurry and don't drive too far. You know, so it just prayers for their safety. Yeah. Yeah, we will do that. Maybe one last thing. If it's okay, I'd like to pray, if this isn't too selfish, that in our nation, that truth wins over lies that are being believed. I would love to see that. I share that. And I, it's not selfish. I mean, you think of the people that are suffering because of those lies. Mm-hmm. I'd like to add one, one little request. Um, in Hinton, Florida, here I, I attend a Sabbath school class and been trying to weave in as much as I could that the larger view, but it's hard. You know, it's hard to do. Sometimes the class always takes off in one direction, and wrong direction in my <laughs> But... Um, then uh, John Pauline's book, Conversations About God. You're familiar mm-hmm. with that, perhaps, everybody? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, attended, I attended some of those meetings. Oh, good. I, I attended most of them. As far as, oh, the Conversations About God meeting, yeah. Well, he put together a book, John Pauline. Yeah, it's, it's actually based on that series yeah. that he did. It's like a transcript of those conversations. Have, yeah. If you haven't heard about it, let me tell you about it real quick. Um, John Pauline, uh, Sherry Kirk, who works at Pinal, she said that John Pauline met Dr. Maxwell because, you know, he's the new, he was the new chair of the department. And he thought, well, Grand Maxwell used to be the chair. And so um, I'd like to meet him, talk to him, because he was, you know, he's thickly older. And so the, the family wasn't letting him really meet with anybody because he was so, you know, so weak. But they said, well, you know, maybe for 20 minutes, you know, and so... John Pauline 
It's a great. I'd love to meet you. They got together and they started talking and talking and talking. And Graham got so enthusiastic you know, about what they were talking about. And they talked for two hours, you know, and the family just let them go. You know? And uh, John Pauline started studying what Dr. Maxwell had taught and heard the, you know, the tapes that were on Pine Knoll, conversations about God and all the other tapes. Yeah. He got so excited about what he was learning. And on one of the Sabbath school uh, tapes that John Pauline, where, where John Pauline was talking at Pine Knoll, he said, you know, so often I would hear something that Graham would say, and he'd say, I don't know about that. And he'd go back to the Greek and say, wow, he was right. He said, I just had, I was so impressed about what, what an accurate, in-depth scholar of the Greek Graham Maxwell was. He said, and he didn't bring out all these technicalities and you know intricacies of the Greek in what he presented to the church because it's just complicated. But he said it's all there, and he said I was just so impressed with his analytical abilities and his accurateness. And yeah, this is a man that the people in the seminary claimed was not an exegetical. Who, John Pauline? But when John was in the seminary, he had a very different view of Graham. Yeah. This is is a miracle. I mean, what you're seeing in John Pauline is a miracle. Yes. Um, Because I heard he was not, you know, pro. He was was the opposite end of the uh, the spectrum. And uh, and yet he was open to a degree. And I think that openness allowed that whole door to swing open. And because I have I've been going, is he really, when he took over Graham's place in the Sabbath school, I was like, is he really there? <laughs> and now you tell me the story and I'm like, wow, uh, this, is, this is really wonderful. Together that book, you, you, you all maybe not heard about the book that John Pauline put together. It's just, it's basically a transcript of the conversations about God with Ben and Graham Maxwell. And it's called Conversations About God. And it's available from Pine Knoll. And um, you just call her up. She'll send you a copy. Or, you know, she'll send copies to all your friends if you want. So I asked her to send copies to everyone in this class. Because I thought, if something happens to me, I want my friends to at least have this perspective to consider. And so... Uh, they're going to this group on Wednesday nights is going to start studying it together. And so I just like your prayers that they'll understand the crucialness of the issues that he's bringing out, you know, but anyway, if you want that book, it's Pine Knoll. They'll send it out for you. We'll do it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I think we agreed that we start on chapter 11. I mean, chapter four of Hebrews verse 11. Jean. Are you able to give just a brief recap of what you covered last week? Because I loved the focus on rest. Are you able to do that before to help my brain kind of recall uh, some of the gems that were shared last week? Is that too much to ask? Uh, You know, I'm feeling my age more and more (laughs) in terms of my memory abilities. Uh, Are there um, no? Just the recording. <laughs> yeah, these are long recordings, you know. <laughs> Last week we went three, three, two, 
three recordings, which is an hour and a half. Uh, of course, it's only about half of that by the time you get done editing sometimes. <laughs> I, I believe that God's wrath, I'll just give you my own belief system on this. I believe that God's wrath is giving people what they have asked for, what they want. And that it is his grief over that choice. That was two weeks ago. Was that two weeks ago? Yes. Yeah, I didn't think we talked about God's wrath last week. But last week was rest. We were talking about rest, yeah. I love what you just said, though. That's great to be to share it. It fits. And well, and I remember it was in my anger, I swore they would not enter my rest. Yes. So is that how it's connected? Yeah, it's connected to rest that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel like... Um, when we talked about the Sabbath rest, uh, Floyd gave such a beautiful description of how that works. So if, if you want to do a rewind and go back to last week, you know, there's some great things there. So chapter four, I'm yes. Chapter four, verse 11. And who can I ask to read? I'm always happy to read. Okay. Alex, would you read, read 11 to 13? Sure. So I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing it until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, No creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Okay, before we start discussing this, I'd like to make a connection between verse 11 and verse 10, or maybe verse 9. So you see that a Sabbath rest is left open for God's people. The one who entered God's rest also rested from his works, just as God rested from his own. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by the, the following the same example of disobedience. Wait, I thought he was talking about rest, and now he's talking about disobedience. I thought he was talking about trust, and now he's talking about disobedience. And what came to my mind as Alex was reading this, I've been reading through the Bible yet another time, and... Um, I'm in numbers. And I always take a deep, I shouldn't say I always, but I've lately been taking a deep breath when I get into numbers. And and here's why. God seems so angry all the time. Numbers is not like Exodus. It is not like Leviticus, where there's very little mention of God's wrath, even when he when things are happen to people like Nadab and Abihu. But numbers, God is angry all the time, and the style is different, and everything seems different. And I consequently tend to think of it as Moses after he struck the rock. Something happened to Moses as they journeyed through the wilderness. Moses wore down. He wore down under the constant disagreement, disobedience. Bickering. Bickering, fighting, etc. And not trusting God. 
that he wore down and became angrier and angrier and he suppressed it and suppressed it. And then when he struck that rock, it kept spilling out. And he wrote numbers because numbers is where he struck the rock. He wrote numbers after that and he was angry. God was angry. You, you get what I'm saying, where the drift is. I don't know how numbers would have been written if Moses had written it before the rock. Yes, Floyd? I've also heard it suggested, and it seems to be credible, that it's very possible, given the sequence of the timeline, that this happened right after Miriam died. Mm -hmm. And given the conditions, it's very possible that Miriam actually died of thirst. And if she died of thirst because they were out of water, that would have been like the last straw for Moses. And Moses was actually angry at God for letting his sister die of thirst. And that would sort of help explain his irritation. I mean, that's on top of the people murmuring over and over and over, refusing to trust God. But it was just like one thing too much. Yeah, and so that's to me is what connects these dots between rest, trust, and disobedience. Mm. Does it not all come from a breakdown of trust? And and I I saw that I I read uh, Numbers thirteen. I started reading Numbers thirteen. I was like, oh, I've got to I've got to deal with this. When I when I get something a new idea, I have to stop and wait until I can deal with it. It was Friday afternoon, I, Friday, I'm Friday after sundown. I wasn't gonna go to my computer and start writing on Sabbath. So <laughs> I just stopped. Joshua, when, they come, when the spies come back, Joshua says very clearly, we are able to go up and take the cities. Let's do it. We are able. And it, my version that I've been reading, the Common English Bible, says that the spies started a rumor that there were these giants in the land. There weren't any giants. Oh. They started a false story to get the people to not be willing to go in. There it is. Believe there it is. All this lack of trust. Love and trust. Yeah. Every time. So when you jump to disobedience, you're not jumping to law. You're jumping out, you're jumping to a natural consequence of lack of trust. And so consequently, the lack of trust is, is what is undergirding it. And that's why Paul in Romans and in Galatians is so adamant that that's all we need is trust. Because yeah. if we really trust God, obedience is, is going to be a natural result. Mm -hmm. yeah. As a therapist, one of the things that took me a while to get my mind around because my own journey was that anger is a protective emotion. And I know I had struggled with accepting my own anger and I often work with clients. And within that context, I go, can, you know, because of course God is not willing that any should perish. And how awful for God to have all these people that he miraculously delivers from slavery. He wants to bring them to a good place. And because of their lack of trust, they're not going to be able to do that. You know, he wants to protect them and he is protecting them, providing them. But because of their not knowing him, trusting him, 
he has to watch all these people die, you know, thousands and thousands of people within a 40-year period. That's a lot of people to die within 40 years, you know. So I, so, um, I know to try to get my mind around that God's anger is a reflection of a heart that longs, pe- longs for people to experience good and blessings and health and prosperity. Anyway, so, but those are challenging books. I'm not going to minimize that those are hard. So I go, yeah, keep reading, keep reading, Nancy. <laughs> Get to Jesus that shows me the best face of God and, and with tears in his eyes as he spoke some pretty harsh words to the people who were going to reject him, betray him, and lose life forever. So, yeah, good points. So what I was suggesting, and I only implied it, so I'm going to state it, uh, that when Joshua said, we are able to take this land, mm-hmm. he set the stage for the rebellion mm-hmm. and the refusal to go in. Mm-hmm. If he had said, we can trust God to bring us in, look at what he promised back in in Exodus, that he would drive out the nations before us. They are not a problem for Yahweh. Look at what he's done for us and, and reiterated all the past things that God did by his power. We that can't. whole story could have been different. Mm-hmm. We've always said that Joshua and Caleb were the heroes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, not quite. They fell short. And he was still doing that kind of thing when they did go in. You know, he was still assuming that we yes. could do this. Hey, we can take AI. That's no problem. He was still wrestling with, one, with God first on everything. He's the one who told them right before they went into Jericho to take the city and do Kerem to its inhabitants. God never said anything in Joshua about doing Kerem. He never said anything about killing them. He just said, go in to the city. And the, and the Bible says, go straight ahead into the city. That meant they could chase them out, drive them out, or they could slaughter them, their choice. Now, I just wanted to clarify, is there any place in the Old Testament where God directly says, kill all the women, children, men, women, children? Yes, Deuteronomy. The later recap is that God said to do that. And that you'd have to, I'd have to go over my hermeneutic for how to read the Old Testament with the major and minor voices. Um, so, and I'm not sure I want to take the time to do that because we're in the New Testament. <laughs> but in other words, he's maybe meeting people where they are. Well, what, there's a sequence, a narrative sequence. First, you have God's preferred voice. Of the voice of his preferred will, which I call the minor voice because it's infrequent mm-hmm. at the beginning. So at, in Exodus, you have the very first statement of God, what he's going to do with them, bringing them into Canaan. He says, I will drive them out from before you. I will use the forces of nature and so on. He never says anything about them killing anybody. Mm-hmm. I'll that's that's his preferred will. But pretty soon you hear the people insisting on that and and especially with the amalekites when they came out um moses doesn't even go to god and said what what shall we do with about this they're coming out to attack us he he just assumes we got to fight them Mm -hmm. and so god makes him sit on a rock 
with his hands up in the sky to remind him, <clears throat> this is my job, not yours. <laughs> Good. So, yeah, you know, I wonder sometimes because Moses hits a rock and God gets very upset. And, and not, not that I'm criticizing God. No. But he says, you know, you broke faith with me. I needed you to do what I said and, you, you know, you didn't. And so there has to be consequences. The people think you brought up me, you know, you brought. So, so Moses up. assumes that God is angry with him? Yeah, or, or maybe he knew God was talking gently with him, but still, you know, God said there has to be consequences because they're under the impression now, you know, shall we do this for you? You know, when they have to know, it's not you doing this for you, but whatever. Later, he says in Deuteronomy that God was, was angry with me because of you. Oh, okay. Uh, he, he says that, be, and that anger, I think, is overshadowing numbers. And it's a projection issue. Mm -hmm. But something made me feel that God was angry with them. I mean, but, you know, sometimes I feel like, it, you know, with a kid, like you, you gave that story about that girl who kept running out in front of cars. I mean, it's a true story. And the, the parents tried everything. <laughs> It's you know, time out and all these leverages that we read about in books that we can take advantage of and nothing worked with her. So finally they spanked her and I'm, I'm thinking she probably thought they're angry with me. They're upset. You know, I don't like that. And so I'll knock it off and it's painful, you know, painful enough to make her stop. And she stopped finally. And so she, I, I can remember yet her eyes. She said, I never ran in front of another yeah. car. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like God just has to raise his voice because no one's listening. I mean, he said, I'll fight for you while you keep silent. I'll send bees and hornets, you know, but they don't listen, you know. And and I just think, why would he not say, look, I told you guys I'd fight for you and you keep silent. Maybe they wanted, like one person in college said maybe they wanted to fight because of the glory of the fight. You know, um, when Gideon, oh, I know it was the Benjamites. They had um, something. They were upset about the, the Levite and the concubine. And so they went and they fought another tribe. Benjamites. Oh, yeah. yeah. And one tribe came up and said, why didn't you let us fight? And they were ready to fight them for not letting them fight. You know, and I'm just going, these people, you know, they, they evidently just really like to fight. And well, I... We have we have a world that is increasingly that way. Yeah, I read a book in college too about this guy losing games, and he said we loved fighting. We just loved going out at night and just fighting. So it's me. It would be painful. I wouldn't want it, but they liked it. Yeah. Oh, so quick points. Uh, first off, I may have missed it. Reviewed again. It doesn't matter if they really were giants in land. I may have, there might have been rumor they may have been taller than they really were, and you know fear tends to. Definitely exaggerate the problems, but obviously, God's bigger than the giant. Uh, number two, when the PTSD patients I deal with, those were former Army Rangers and folks. Most of them are very, quite a few are PTSD from the the way that the world tends to act. And there are some that they sort of handle whatever it is, it becomes a job for them. But the idea of, you know, God just has a better way. And he knows it's not going to work. They end up marrying their enemies and all the other factors. So, but you know, the main thing is if you see God through at least, you know, I identify with the healing model, but 
it's hard when you see your patients just barely surviving knowing to go back to smoking or, you know, the folks who survived that car accident still are drinking, you know, it's going to kill some more people and kill themselves next time. So, you know, there's an anger on people's choices and that they're willing to be deceived and Satan hates them. I mean, you know, Ellen White says some great things. Satan hates those who are even his heroes. I'm still surprised he let Judas die so quickly. Mm-hmm. You thought he would die of old age and looking like he was the party, happy, friendly guy, you know, but you know, Satan hates people. Those are on his side. So those are a couple of my thoughts. Yeah, so so I think there's every connection between verse 10. They failed to enter God's rest. Let's enter into that rest lest we follow the same example of disobedience. The disobedience is the result of not failing, of failing to enter God's rest. So it sounds like, because earlier somebody said that what we need is to trust God. Mm -hmm. But then the obedience is trusting God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, you have to start with trust, but then you're going to end up with trust. So where do you get the trust? Because we have a hard time trusting anybody. I believe, I could be wrong, Sue or whoever is the Graham expert, maybe Gene. I believe I heard Graham say over and over the definition of obedience is a willingness to listen. And so where does trust come from? That actually is not originated with Graham Maxwell. That's actually what the Hebrew and the Greek read. That's what I think he was referring to. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, no, I agree. that's all right. Um, I agree. I just heard him articulate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Hebrew word for obedience is to listen. Yes. And the Greek word of obedience is to listen under, that is, to listen with a willing a willing listening. Um, so, so God... Save anybody that's not teachable or trainable. Yeah. So faith, how can you how can you listen under if you don't trust God? Yeah. But, exactly. but trust comes from hearing the word of God according to scripture. So, <laughs> so we're dealing with a circle. That's a willingness yeah. to listen, is it not? Uh, yeah. Bill's so been trying to, to listen. The word itself will generate your trust, and yes. then you use the trust, and you'll keep moving. So I, I, you know, there's a, a um, I posted once in the larger view Oasis, uh, something along the lines that there's no bar. Somebody made a comment. And so my reply was, there's no bar of trust, right? So I think every, for me, every human being, the narrative of the Bible, what makes sense to me is that every human being has enough trust for inclusion, right? They, they haven't abandoned it. They haven't de- extinguished it. Um, and and has a, a willingness to listen that's, that transcends all of our experiences that, that God can get through through the Spirit, first and foremost. That, that, so that's what the narrative says to me. It reveals that to me as I read it now. There's the, so the the faith of a mustard seed, right? The small smallest could throw the mountain into the sea. So we don't even have that. So there's no bar to the end or to the beginning of trust in in the in the sense of what God has given us. We can extinguish it. We can move it away. Adam and Eve took and placed 
that tiniest of trust and placed it somewhere else. But not so much that he wouldn't still engage with God. So, so even though they had broken uh, relational wholeness and oneness, they still had something there that allowed them to re-engage. And so I think that the disobedience is that willful extinguishing repeatedly of that draw of God for us. And, and when I look at what is the great work we are to do to enter that rest, the labor, it's relational labor that doesn't extinguish it, that allows us to grow in listening ability and the willingness to respond so that the trust grows, not like we flipped the switch, we've gone through the hoop of trust. Any of us who have entered into intimate relationships with somebody, a friendship, a marriage, whatever, we recognize trust grows. It's not just suddenly there or not there. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I think what you're trying to do, Bill, is move away from a transactional model for trust <laughs> to an to a dynamic experiential model for trust, which there's no beginning or end and there's no way you can measure it. Mm -hmm. Right. So thank you. That is the succinct way of me being verbose. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always looking for language. (laughs) How can I state this? So I understand it. Um, I'd like to share something after George, maybe. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll go after you. Well, because I think that's a really interesting question, Floyd, of like this kind of circular reasoning or like getting at like what what is the foundation? And that got me thinking about, you know, the, the way that I see trust playing out in my life often comes with my line of work of like when I'm working, treating patients with PTSD, there's oftentimes a lot of issues around trust. And that trust doesn't that trust isn't built by me telling them that I'm trustworthy. Mm-hmm. That yeah. gets built as they see evidence mm-hmm. of me acting in that way. And that just made me think of, I don't think God asks us to trust him without evidence. Mm-hmm. I think it starts off maybe fundamentally to get to your question. Trust starts with observation. So when the Bible says God has given to every man a certain measure of trust, how would you interpret it? I think I would, I, I would probably say God has given us evidence mm-hmm. to trust. Certain amount of evidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is, given, and, and could we say maybe that he's given us the capacity to trust? Sure. The, the ability um, to trust. But we still have to have the evidence to get that trust. Uh, that's been my experience with God. Uh, my conversion experience, I came about because I realized I didn't love him. I was converted from legalism. Mm. <laughs> you don't hear many dramatic stories from of that, but I have one. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I was delivered from legalism. And, and the whole... Um, tell, tell us it. Tell us it. <laughs> I've told it so many times in this class that I, I'm reticent to tell it again. But, but you want to make a with Gene? Basically, I heard... <laughs> I heard uh, the still small voice say, all you need to do is love God, because if you love him, you will obey him. Mm. And it was the voice of a week of prayer speaker. 
years before, I was 14. I had gone to an academy week of prayer and heard this message. And I realized I didn't love God. It didn't matter whether love was a principle or a feeling. I didn't have either one. Mm. I didn't know God. God was up there. He was supposed to get me into heaven if I obeyed him. And I did what he told me to down here. And and that was the end of our relationship. (laughs) Very transactional. And I think the whole Adventist church is pretty much. Well, I grew up, I grew up in, in, in Oregon when in the heartbed of legalism of the 1960s. So when did you convert? Was it 14 or when did 14, you convert? 14. You got, you started so I didn't know where to go, but I fell, a sermon fell into my hands by Morris Venden, in which he told mm-hmm. us that we needed to spend time with Jesus, getting to know him. And he recommended that we read Desire of Ages for 30 minutes a day. Wow. I was like, okay, I can do that. That's something I can do. So I sat down with my copy of Desire of Ages and I set the clock to where I could see it. <laughs> and I read, I read a, few verse, a few lines of Desire of Ages, and I looked at the clock. And I read a few more lines of Desire of Ages, and I looked at the clock. And I found myself looking at the clock more than I looked at Desire of Ages. Wow. And when I got through with those painful 30 minutes, I didn't love God any more than when I began. Uh, and one night, I, I used to, my favorite thing after I went to bed was to pretend I was preaching. (laughs) I don't know what I had to preach about, but I I would pretend I was preaching. Uh, It was a dream from the time I was nine and heard a woman preach at the Laurelwood Church Mm. for the first time that I decided that women could do that, and I wanted Mm. to do it. So anyway, uh, I started preaching, but this time I took kind of the stance that Emilio Connectley had done with this Eden to Eden series where it's the story of the great controversy, the story of God's love. And I decided I was going to preach that, but I was going to put in a little Graham Maxwell because I had read, uh, you can trust the Bible. I was going to put in a little Graham Maxwell and I was going to uh, have God himself trying to win people back to him and God himself coming as Jesus. And, And so it would be the same God, old and new testaments. And so I was, I was, I was going to really move my congregation, my imaginary congregation. So I started in with the Old Testament and kept, kept mentioning how God himself was trying to win them back. And, and that was his goal. It wasn't to be punitive. It wasn't to be harsh. It was, it was purely love. And when I got to the New Testament and toward Jesus was God in the flesh. Something began to happen to me. And it started becoming real. Mm. And I'm, I'm sorry at this point if I'm a little emotional, but um, this, is, this is where it really got me. I made it to Gethsemane, and I could hardly go any farther. Mm. I missed his trial, all his trials. I managed to make it to Golgotha, and it was hard going. I could hardly do it. I mean, I lost my congregation. I was, it was me and God, and it was real. It was as if it was happening right before me. And I got to Gethsemane. I mean, I got to the cross just in time to hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, 
They don't know what they're doing. Mm. The whole world caved in. I don't know if you remember the, the gospel song, Love Was When God Became a Man. There's a line that says, my mm-hmm. whole world caved in. Well, that's what happened to me. Mm. And I realized that night that a God who was, would go to such lengths to win me back was a God who would never hurt me. Mm. And I could trust him. Mm. And I realized that the reason I didn't love him is because I couldn't trust him. That's powerful. Well said. Beautiful. So that that's my my experience. That experience and and I had had a false revival before, just before that. It let me down in three weeks. It was a forensic revival. (laughs) 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 And I very quickly learned. It doesn't stick. <laughs> I need something more substantial and more lasting. Well, this has lasted almost 50 years. Next summer. Stony Heart anniversary. Thank you for sharing, Jean. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, may, may tie into that, Jean, is just essentially, it's like the word intimacy I heard recently broken down as into me, you see. Oh. <laughs> and you saw into God, and now you can trust him to see into you, and you want him to. You don't have to hide behind whatever, you know, it's like you want, it's win-win. You really are. I want to see the guy more and more every day and I want him to see me better every day. So I'm not fooled and hurting myself and others around. So it's just, it's neat how your, you just did there illustrated the, the, the true intimacy. When you were relating that to me, some things came to my mind because you read the desire of ages and yet it didn't touch you. Like when you yourself were talking about it, and I don't know, maybe I'm all, but you psychologists can help me, maybe. Um, I had a kind of a similar experience. I couldn't read Ellen White when I, I first became an Adventist. I just, well, she was abused so badly when exactly. we were kids. Exactly. <laughs> How could we? Yeah, and I could hearing harsh voice, harsh voice, no matter what I read of hers. And then I, I fortunately had Grand Maxwell as a teacher. And the way he brought it out, you know, it's just his loving, warm, uh, welcoming voice, you know, just, it just changed everything. And, yeah. um, and then a, a friend of mine was reading Steps to Christ to me once, and she was reading in such a sweet yeah. voice. And I thought, I can handle this, but I can't handle reading it. <laughs> you know, it does nothing to me to read it. But it, it, so our, the way, uh, the way, I, I mean, the way we present, truth is so much part of god's truth is which is which is why ellen says that we are to, uh, the work of the last days is to do what jesus did was to take truth out of the framework of error mm-hmm. and put it into the framework of truth mm-hmm. in other words we've all been fed a framework of lies mm-hmm. and that framework is how we've been led to see ellen and it's been how we led to see the bible and how we've led to see any truth and so it becomes unpalatable and something nasty that we don't even want to deal with. But to resurrect Desire of Ages, I didn't stop reading it after my conversion. I was still reading it. And one day I started thinking, you know, if God is really love, as John says in 1 John 4.18, or 4.8, I should say, yes. then he cannot destroy the wicked. Mm-hmm. They just cannot be the one who destroys the wicked. 
-hmm. And I thought, I can believe I see that in the Bible, but I'd never see it in Ellen White. Until it is finished, that chapter. So I came to the chapter, it is finished, just days after I thought that. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And I was turning the pages, and I came to 763, where she quotes those statements that all sound like God is destroying the wicked. And then she says, this, and I took a deep breath and I got, here goes, turn the page. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. <laughs> and she outlines that it's not God doing it. I remember I was sitting cross-legged on my double bed <laughs> and I leaped into the air and said, it's true. It's really true. <laughs> and that, so that was the second wave of that same conversion experience that cemented my trust. You know, with all the emphasis that the church puts on Ellen White, I don't understand why this isn't being presented in mainstream amateurism. I believed, I read Desire of Ages through before that time, and I never, I did not believe she was a loving God. I could read Desire of Ages through and not believe Ellen, that Ellen believed that she, that he was a loving God. That's how, that's how that framework just controls the picture. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, who can break it? Really, I think people broke it for me. Loving people who, mm -hmm. who were able to, to see, but, you know, maybe they came from a very loving family or, you know, had a very loving church environment or whatever. It didn't come across to them as this harsh, commanding, dictator, you know. And Which is how she was portrayed. They were able to see it, whereas we weren't with our past authority figures. I think, I think that, yeah, that that is what has to happen. We have to still read her, but read her in a different frame. Read her in a different, until it becomes here. It, ha it takes repetition. And, and perhaps um, as an emissary, you know, like Maxwell was me, or, you know, like we are his, we are supposed to, uh, you know, he says, um, it, what, Second Corinthians 5, how we are trying to reconcile people to God. And maybe that's the way we can do that by being loving people and bringing out the loving things that God said, that people will, you know, be able to hear it like we were finally able to hear it. You know, I think that's happening. I really think that's happening in our world. There's, there's a movement that transcends the Adventist church, Absolutely. which we're very comfortable with. Like Brian Zond, um, yes. Greg Boyd, um, and some others. John Eldridge. Yeah, that are trying to do this. And, and they don't have, you know, Greg Boyd lost several thousand members of his church by speaking the truth. <laughs> about the church and the state. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it isn't popular. This will never be popular. Mm -mm. The truth divides. It may come to a point where we it seems to be popular. I see someone we haven't seen for a long time. Let's welcome Rosemary. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us from Korea. Yeah. Um, 
Welcome. Back back to earlier discussion with Sir Rich. First, I want to pay a tribute a little bit to my sister, Nancy. I'm sure what year this is, probably like 1978. And uh, <clears throat> Jim Pappas has been a huge blessing in my life, and he did a lot of drama out of PUC for decades, mm -hmm. a long time. And, yes. And ironically, Brad actually played the same role. I could go along in the story, but I got inspired, and I didn't. I'm a pre-med student, but I had so much fun doing drama for two years, created a drama team for Southern. And it was just great. But we were getting close to putting on, and my sister, I just take my hat off to her because at that point, I'm not sure where Jim is on some of the factors there, but he, at the very end, it's called Heaven's a Nice Place to Visit, but it's an amazing drama. But at the very end, this guy wants out of heaven. He went there. It was really cool to start with. But in the last scene, he doesn't love Jesus, so he's bored. He wants out. He wants life the way he had it. And so he goes to talk to God and not, not be negative with Jim. I even told him we changed it. He was okay with it. I'm sure he changed it for the other people. But uh, at the very end, the guy was going to, he was going to have to be crucified because of what Jesus went through. And my sister Nancy says, that's just not right. So she rewrote the ending. And at the very end, the devil is trying to crucify Benny. And, and it's really rich, rich of the words go back and forth. He's out of pride. Says, yeah, quick. And just for he's, but he says, can we talk about it? And the devil's eager to crucify him to get this over with. And, uh, and then he finally gets it. And then Jesus delivers him. And as he gets up, he sees Jesus goes down to take his place again. And that's inspired. And I, I put this up on some of our groups before, but, and I'm open for input. But God allows us, I'm convinced that the, at the third coming and the day of judgment, those that refuse to accept the cure, they don't crucify Jesus again, but they simply say, Father, into your hands, I give you my spirit. It's weird. Those words are the most noble words ever said by Jesus. But if I'm lost someday, and I say, Father, into your hands, I give you my spirit. I want you to keep it for the rest of eternity. And yeah, you go wipe away the tears from my family's eyes and this and that, but no one's going to wipe away the tears from your eyes. You are willing to let me pierce in a way you'll never, ever, ever get over. And God's cry from eternity past, he knew it was coming. He's going to cry for eternity future. Probably using him private, I think. And so God allows us to wound him forever. And he takes the loss. I mean, he's going to feel the loss of Judas Iscariot and Nero, Nero's mom. And the folks on what tells us is going to be lost. But the third of the angels and just the, the amazing vulnerability of God is just needs to be emphasized somehow better. And on my little piece, I'll put a link up there. Where do you want your name? And I'm open for how we can make it better. Or make, or someone else do something totally different, but shares that same message. Just, uh, I'm amazed at God's strength that he allows him to be so vulnerable. He doesn't have to be vulnerable. He chooses to be vulnerable, and therefore, I love and like him to the moon and beyond. Sorry, I get excited. I'll, I'll mute myself here. Yeah, well, shall we get back to Hebrews? <laughs> it's been a great discussion. But uh, let's see if we can make some more points out of this chapter. We come to verse 12, because God's word is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. That, in a wrong framework, can be just horrible. Right. <laughs> what do we make of this two-edged sword? I found that verse to be uh, one of the best explanations of judgment. Uh, in fact, a sword throughout scripture is a symbol of judgment. But it's God's kind of judgment, not our, well, it represents both of them, but in two different ways. You know, we use sword for judgment, for slaughtering people and punishing people. 
but Jesus defines judgment in John 3 as light coming and dividing. And the division is not God's doing, it's how we react to the light. Yeah. So if the sword is the word of God, and, and if you look at even the description here, and look at it not as a sword, because in Scripture, any cutting instrument is called a sword. So you could call this a scalpel. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. I mean, Peter didn't have a sword. He had a, a fisherman's knife. But it was called a sword. But it says here that it's, it's sharper, and it pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, of joints, of and of marrow, and that's where it stops. Well, if you were a physician, and we have some here, and you're doing surgery, and you're cutting into the body, how deep can you go into a body? Down to the marrow. You can't go, if you go past the marrow, you're coming out the other side. Mm -hmm. So what this is saying is, it exposes everything. So it isn't talking about harming, it's talking about exposing. And that's the nature of judgment, is exposing. Not condemning, exposing. Mm -hmm. And you're saying the word of God is exposing. The truth exposes the lies. It's illuminating. All the way to the deepest lies possible. Yeah. It reminds me of Jesus' words in John where he says, I don't judge you. My words judge you. And this would be a perfect fit with truth reveals and ultimately God's truth reveals to our own hearts and souls and I think that will be the cry of the wicked who say God is correct his judgment about my judgment is correct and what leads them to do that is seeing the whole panorama of, yes. of the great controversy and set, including Jesus on the cross mm -hmm. that hold the truth the whole truth about God is what they see that leads them to see them. Once again, another revelation or revealing, which you know, is I'd, uncovering. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to deal with Job on this. It took me, I passed my dissertation. I wrote a dissertation on the book of Job, but it took me way past my dissertation to finally realize, it took personal suffering to finally realize Job starts out with God's declaring him to be a righteous and upright person, a righteous and blameless person. Then the three friends come along and say, Job, you must have sinned to suffer so terribly. Of course, in between that is the Satan claiming that if you, if you test him hard enough, he'll, he'll, he'll buckle and you'll find out he's not such a blameless and upright man. Uh, so then Job takes up the line of, I am not sinning. That is not the problem here. That is not what's happening. And I want to declare my case and defend my case before God. And so you spend the bulk of the book there with Job on, on, the, on the garbage dump, which is where he ends up, uh, trying to defend himself, trying to get exoneration, trying to get validation, trying to get vindication. And then God comes in a whirlwind, and he topples Job's pride but at the same time reveals his journey in the great controversy and if you've never read the divine speeches that way just keep in mind that the metaphors of the divine speeches are all about chaos and evil 
in God's journey with them. At the end of that, God says to the three friends, not my servant Job is a blameless and upright man. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Job's exoneration is not being blameless and upright. It's in what he says about God. There you go. Now, that always got me because he says some pretty... Uh, you know, as God has a God has a pretty um, rose-colored set of glasses, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we really gives Joe jo a lot of, of room, um, which is understandable, considering he didn't understand what was happening to him, and we don't know if he ever did. But what, I was interested in what you said about chaos. Do the animals that he talks, that God talks about? They're they, predator and prey, and he treats them all the same. He loves them. See, that's what Job contended, is that God treats the wicked and the righteous the same. Mm-hmm. And he uses it in the negative. He destroys the wicked and the righteous alike. God turns that into the positive. I take care of the wicked and the righteous alike. Gene, wasn't that, I could be wrong, but you know the Old Testament far better than some of the rest of us. Uh, again, maybe it's Graham's words. Wasn't good and evil attributed to God in the Old Testament thinking? Until Job, yes. Yes, thank you. When was the book of Job written? I've heard some people assert that it was one of the first books yes. written. What well, you- it's, the tradition oh. has been that Moses wrote Job when he was herding sheep. Um, I'm not here to negate that. I, I see actually from a literary perspective from translating Job in Hebrew, that there's a Hebrew layer that's very old. And instead of Leviathan, you have the crocodile. Instead of the, instead of the behemoth, you have the hippopotamus. Mm-hmm. And these are Egyptian animals. So you have Moses. But there's a later layer that's much more exilic, post-exilic, in which Job is revised. And it's revised around Enuma Elish. That is the divine speeches, anyway, are revised around Enuma Elish. And I attribute that to Ezra. Mm. Ezra was from Babylonia. He was a scribe. And in scribal schools, they were taught to memorize certain works like Enuma Elish. Which is Babylonian scriptures, or what? What, what is that? Babylonian scriptures. Mm-hmm. Babylonian. It's, they don't have scriptures in Babylon, but it's a Babylonian work that was used on the New Year's festival, the Akitu festival, uh, in praise to Marduk, the patron yeah, so god of Babylon. Is it obvious that it was redacted in this other layer? Put on he top? uses it. He uses it, and he uses it a little poorly because there's certain places where the Hebrew text doesn't quite follow in order, in the same order as Enuma Elish. Mm. So you can correct that order easily by looking at Enuma Elish. <laughs> it's He's kind of interesting. It, jo- the book of Job is following Enuma Elish as far as the animal. And the divine speeches, yes. Right along. Mm. And then, you know, uh, one scholar was saying that he felt that Leviathan, I mean, it's kind of in scripture, Isaiah 27, Leviathan is called the twisted serpent, you know, or the coiled serpent. He felt Leviathan 
God was talking about the adversary himself. Um, I don't know. Is that a viable? Yeah. Yes. And that was where I was planning to go for my dissertation, but I had a very upset professor in my committee that made me stop and think, I'll just lead them up to the evidence. Like kind of like a person who doesn't believe the Grand Canyon exists. You don't, you don't tell them over and over again, it exists. You just lead them to the edge. What do you see? <laughs> That's what I did with my dissertation. It's wise. So in the Babylonian, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the, the writings, but um, Leviathan was considered. Uh, Leviathan is Tiamat, and it's the same kind of creature, but it's Tiamat. The Leviathan is the Northwest Semitic, so it's more the, the Palestinian, the Syri Syrian uh, levels. Whereas Mesopotamia, Babylonia, is more east. Do you happen to have a write-up that I could read about it? Um, Spectrum magazine okay. published that chapter of my dissertation. I, I pared it down and, and made it a little more readable. But they published my that chapter in 2003. I don't know if you have access to a library where you are that would have Spectrum. No, probably not. You're not near Loma Linda anymore. No, I, I never was. I was in San Diego. Oh, you never were. I went down to San Diego. So you're San Diego. Oh, that's too bad. But now I'm Florida. <laughs> oh, now you're Flo in Florida. Yeah. That's even worse. I know. Um, you <laughs> could contact a friend of mine, Ernie Bercy. Hi, sweetie. You're near Orlando. Oh, I'm not. I, I'm maybe uh, two hours away. Oh, dear. Yeah. I was going to say you could ask him if he personally has a copy of the 2000. It would be the summer 2003. I'll see if I can get it on the internet too. Maybe it's there. More Leviathan in Florida. <laughs> yeah, we have lots of, lots of crocodiles. <laughs> uh, you have lots of crocodiles in the glades, <laughs> Everglades. I was just wanting to ask you, um, you mentioned that the God, God's interpretation, people perceive God as good and evil, and it stopped from the time of Job. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. If you look at the books of Moses, there's no mention of a Satan. There's yeah. no mention of, of any, any kind of dualism. God is responsible for everything. And if you go uh, to most of the prophets, the same thing is true. The Psalms, the same thing is true. So you're um, saying after Job, then there was a distinction. Starting, starting with Job, uh, there's an introduction of the Satan. Mm. Now, there could be that that actually started with Zechariah. Zechariah 3, Job, as Satan is uh, accusing Joshua, mm -hmm. the high priest. Mm-hmm. And then that, when it talks about in Isaiah 27, you know, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, um, how, do you, how do you see Isaiah referring to him? Isaiah 27, 1. He shall kill. Oh, let me turn to it. It's Isaiah 27, 1. Um, On that day, the Lord will take a great sword, harsh and mighty, and will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the writhing serpent, and will kill the dragon that is in the sea. 
Um, that's again a God who who deals with everything, and everything is under His control. Of course, you can also use the same sword that we just found in Hebrews. 4. Right. And and Barbage yeah. is seven sixty four in destroying in that way. The frame of reference. Yeah, the frame of reference is right. Did Isaiah see Leviathan as Satan? Do you think by that time? Or? I doubt it. Yeah. Okay. I doubt it. You were you've been trying to say something, Bill. Sorry. Yeah. So looking at Job, you know, um, for me, and this may say more of where I've been in in, in my growth, but it, as I reflect back on Job and I see the arguments of his friends, his wife, and Job, there's this underlying thread of legalism right, mm -hmm. of behavior, of sin as a thing. Mm -hmm. And when God answers, he ignores that and moves it relationally. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I see that as the frame, at least one of the ways mm -hmm. to look at the different frames, one of mm -hmm. behavior, sin as a, as a rule-breaking uh, thing versus the frame of relationship and trust. Mm -hmm. And that even the accuser throughout the scriptures is basing it on a legal issue and God is always or at least trying to reframe that to a relational issue. I just wanted to drop that back out there. Yeah. I'm curious, what do you think God's Job said about God that was right? Because sometimes I read through there and I'm going I think it was chiefly that God number one, that he is not punishing me. Okay. For sin. Some sin I've done. Number two, he treats the wicked and the righteous alike. Mm -hmm. because that's what God affirms really in the divine speeches, mm -hmm. the divine, because, because he treats the predator and the prey alike. And by the way, there's 11, 11 animals in the divine speeches and those 11 animals parallel Tiamat, who's Leviathan to the Mesopotamians and to Enuma Elish. It parallels her warriors who are 11. Who are what? 11? 11. And 11 is not a major number in, in, in the ancient Near East. It's not significant. So when you find 11 in two texts, you can't help but think they're tied together uh, yeah. Yeah. directly. Anyway, um, yeah, so God treats the wicked and the righteous the same. It's very interesting to me, just briefly, the... Um, connection between how God handles the sin problem, which is broken relationship with and began in heaven, and then how God gives the devil the freedom to show us a better way. And the devil is immediately saying, I'm not here. I'm, it's just you guys. And so he's trying to cover up and hide who, where all these lies come from while God is trying to reveal himself as the way, the truth, the life. Mm -hmm. And it's just very interesting to me, the contrast between the two, what lies lead to and what truth leads to. Mm -hmm. I believe too. Yeah. And how do you convince someone who thinks COVID-19 is a lie? Mm -hmm. How do you convince them it's the truth? when they don't even accept the evidence. 
Well, how do you convince them sin exists? Same person. The same problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my job. I think the Holy Spirit. If I could so, interact with them. So the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Yes. In uh, Hebrews. Mm -hmm. Speaking about revealing, speaking about exposing. Yes. It is able to judge the heart's thoughts and intentions. Yes. In other words, it exposes it. Who does it expose it to? Himself? Ourselves. Yes. It only, it's a between us and God. It's not the whole world being exposed. And I don't think God ever exposes the wicked. They expose themselves. They expose themselves. Yes. Which verse um, explains or is very comprehensive in expressing what you just said earlier, um, which is that God treats the wicked and the righteous the same? Um, which actually, verse? Job says it, and I forget the chapter and verse. He says it in, a, in the dialogues with the three friends. Um, God doesn't say it. He shows it in the divine speeches. Yeah, he does show it. I was wondering if it was a reference. It would be um, Job 39, 30, yeah, 39 and 40. 39 and 40. Mostly 39, a little bit of 38, and then 39. And Jesus says the same thing. Yeah. He commands us to be perfect, right? Yeah. And he said that God's the son and kind of your enemies. Yeah. To me, that Job is the new, the Old Testament version of Matthew uh, 5, 43 to 48. And I also think that God is commending Job not for necessarily his twisted theological perception of God, which was pretty dark but for the fact that Job didn't give up. Even if he's angry at God, he's still talking to God. He's not walking away. He's not throwing God out the door. He's very upset because God's not acting like God's supposed to act, which, you know, he didn't realize it was Satan masquerading as God. So he's very upset, yeah. but he's, God knows that, you know, his anger is the one doing this to him is not God. Job is a disputation. The generic, uh, uh, if we look at the gen, uh, generic form, it's a disputation between Job and three friends. And so you have to take a kind of a scalpel and tear away the times that Job is talking against the God of the three friends and the times that Job is talking about his God. Because he does say, Sorry. Though he slay me, I will trust him at one point, right? Right. There are, there are high points where Job is obviously talking about his God and his relationship with God. But a lot of times, rhetorically, he's responding to the three friends, and so he's talking against their God. Mm -hmm. When he says, I, you know, though he slay me, that I will trust him, it's, he's in essence saying he's worthy of my trust still. You know, so in we, that sense, he did say something of God that was right. Which is profound when you look at the trauma that Job went through and the incredible losses, you know, financially, physically, his kids all dying in this tragic, you know, tornado. I mean, it is, it, it does speak well that he's still engaging with God, even though yeah. working through the process 
but trusting still, I mean, that is, that's pretty amazing. One thing that's interesting is that um, when actually God's children start loving their enemies, it's, it's interesting to see the reaction, the reaction, the reaction that comes against them is from the end, from Satan, actually. It's not from God. And that's really interesting because um, at the church where, where I was where I'm attending, um, at a communion service, which hasn't happened for a year because of the COVID, and then we had a communion service about two weeks ago, and uh, straight... It was one of the best sermons I had ever heard in a communion service where it was completely reconciling and people washed each other's feet and were confessing and making things right with each other, which was pretty amazing. I thought it would never actually happen in this church. And then straight after that service, it was just all alerts, all on our phones. The next day, we had this whole thing shut down. Our church was shut down completely. And um, I just had this really strong um, impression from God. God was just saying, it's just the enemy that's attacking because people are learning to love each other. And I know Ellen White says that when we start loving each other as God loves, it will stir, it stirs up Satan tremendously. It's like a huge wrath against God's children. So yeah, we just go on this roller coaster ride all the time. As soon as we're acting like God, we get hit, and then when we're not acting like God, we just say, we're just gliding along for a while. <laughs> it's really so interesting. It's become so vivid to me. It's unbelievable. You know, yeah. I like what you just said and in, in the portrayal there of uh, the great controversy really coming out in the open, which is, I think, what we're seeing more than we know. Yeah, I think so. But um, it seems to me that this ability to judge the heart's thoughts and intentions of the, of the word has to be through the spirit mm-hmm. using the word on our hearts. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, this black guy, he said, um, which I really respect, actually, the, the, the chief justice in South Africa is so admir- admirable. Um, I should send his speech. It's just amazing. Um, he just, well, one of them said that, um, why do we love our enemy and hate ourselves? Uh, but his speech was just incredible, and there were so many things in it. Um, and that he said, "Well, I'm not going to. I don't. I'm not here to get anybody's favor. I'm here to stand up for what the truth is and to protect my people." And I was, he, you know, he's totally is on the edge. Every, you know, he gets attacked consistently, but he's, he's not going to bow down to this COVID sham and lies. But yes, there is a, there is a of, of course, there's disease and stuff like that spreading, and we have to be cautious about it. But um, 
yeah, the, the way he analyzed everything was just brilliant. And I just don't see that happening very often because people seem, tend to just, I don't know why we, we seem to, we don't do our research really well. Okay, so I'm um, still trying to get back to Hebrews here. <laughs> I enjoy all of your comments, though. No creature is hidden from it, verse 13. Hidden from the word. But rather, everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of one with whom we have to give an answer. So we're not, it's not me, myself, and I. It's between me and God. This exposure takes place. Does anyone else get Genesis vibes from that? Genesis 3, I think. Yeah, but yeah, Genesis vibes. Like, that kind of language of being naked and laid bare. Oh, oh yes, Genesis 3. The snake was the most intelligent, which is a word that sounds like the Hebrew word for naked. Hmm. The, mo- the cunningness of the sap- serpent sounds like the word for naked. They both come from the same word. Hom- their homonym. Wow. Uh, the snake was the most intelligent of the wild animals God had made. And I was thinking the, the like verse before that in Genesis 2, the two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. And then the snake was the most intelligent slash naked. Hmm. But he really was the most secretive. Yes. And what it. he does. I like Jesus' words in John 3. He says, this is how judgment works. The light has come into the world. But people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Those who do evil things hate the light and they do not come to the light because they don't want to be seen. They don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. But what is so ironic is that the only person who's exposed is themselves. Yes. Everybody else sees their evil deeds and know what they are. Mm-hmm. But it's like they don't think that because they don't think that they have any evil deeds. And so when they come to the light and they see their evil deeds, they suddenly realize everybody sees me that way. <laughs> hmm. I was wondering one thing, and it's such an interesting story. What if Adam had said, Eve, I may eat the fruit soon, but let's go talk to our healer, talk to our friend. You know, maybe she went on a gun with him. You know, like, what was the rush? Eve or Eve? Well, hey, you know, and it's still complex. So she touched the fruit before, and, you know, and, you know, she added to God's words there, which is a complex in this thing on part. But what was the rush for Adam to eat, too? What was, you know, why didn't he say, well, that's it. I may. Let me go get Adam. Let's talk to you together. You know, it's, it's, it's Satan tends to rush things, and, you know, divided, we're separate. And hopefully, by the way, if we're wounded, hopefully let someone take us to God so we'll, we'll let him into me see, and I'll really see him, and I'll say, this is, this is good. I think that when she talked to the serpent, she was under the serpent's aura, mm-hmm. and that she was in a state of delusion. Anybody can be in a state of delusion if they are confronted in a certain way that is almost hypnotic. I'm not being critical of Eve, just trying, what do we learn so we don't make her, keep making her mistakes, keep making Adam's mistakes? I'm not sure if we're there yet, because I think we keep 
I think, I think the important thing is that we learn the things that education is supposed to have taught us to be critical in our thinking, to be alert that not everything we hear, see, and, and everything is the truth, and to be ones who are willing to question. Mm-hmm. She doesn't question the serpent. Mm-hmm. The serpent comes across as someone who has been in the courts of God and knows something that God knows but isn't willing to tell them. That is so brilliant what you said. Because it's, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. He, he, from the get-go, he's lying about God because he says, as God said, well, God didn't say, he commanded. The, the word is very clear, and it's very clear from the statement. One thing I have learned about God in my journey is that when God asks me to do something, he's always clear. He's unequivocally clear. When someone else wants me to do something, he's manipulative. He works on my emotions and not my reason. And he tries to muddy the waters. He is very unclear. About being vague. Yeah, vague, ambiguous, right down the list. Interesting. You you seem to have a, a, a differentiation between saying and commanding, and I was interested in what but the reason, the reason is, is needed as a command is for clarity. Okay. This is absolutely necessary. This is absolutely a, a must. You'll die if you don't take me seriously. That's mm. the kind of language. He mm. murdered, really, in some ways. <laughs> it's interesting because there's that, cheap, oh, trust me, you know, take faith. And Satan has that distortion where you're saying healthy trust. Well, give me more evidence. I want to trust more, but... Keep keep making you know, keep talking to me. Show me the evidence. Stop and think. She just listens. Mm. That's different than the kind of listening that is obedience. The listening that is obedience is always testing the spirits. Mm. Always mm. testing. Always critically thinking. That's what kind of uh, listening. He, God wants listening that even of beginners who's, who recognize the seriousness of what he says and acts upon it because it can save a life. If, if you're about to jump off a, or if you're running down a hill, a slope of a hill and you're just about to go over the edge of a, a great crevasse and somebody shouts, fall down. It's just the only way you can stop. When you're at fast momentum, the only way you can stop is to fall, is to drop. And they yell at you to drop. If you don't do that, you're dead. Mm-hmm. I got that from Uncle Arthur's ch- children's hour. <laughs> <laughs> there was a story about that. And I learned about what to do when you're falling, running too fast and can't stop in time. But that's, that's what's happening with Eve. And if at any point she had stopped and said, wait a minute, that's not true. I know this about God. But she was hoodwinked. She was just in a state of delusion. That's the, that's the idea of occultism, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Occultism is a spell, and the very word occult means to obscure. It's, it's a visual language. Mm-hmm. It's, to occlude is to obscure vision. And, and what I see in this verse, it says, Before him all things are laid open, naked, 
there, which is exactly what the last verse in Genesis 2 is. That's how we were created. So what this verse is saying is he's restoring us back to our original design of creation. And the serpent, which was, you know, the, the cunning of the serpent, which comes from the same root word as the naked, mm-hmm. I believe is the exploitation of vulnerability. Yes. God created us to be vulnerable. The serpent is looking to exploit vulnerability. Now he's got us afraid of being exploited, so we never want to be vulnerable. Right. And so God has the problem of trying to convince us that until we become vulnerable again, we cannot thrive in the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Well summarized. Welcome to trauma work. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you're saying is so true, because my mother, she had to go into a, sur- into a surgery um, yesterday because of her shoulder and she had, it was in an accident and um, she had some pins in her shoulder and three of them were taken out two weeks ago and she had to go back to get the other two taken out. And all of a sudden um, the laws changed within two weeks and they told, um, after the surgery you have to get all these invasive um, COVID tests um, before you can come to the hospital. And um, so I I said to my mother, no, you're not going to take any of those invasive COVID tests. I will research. And so I researched everything, and I found out that Yale University um, was testing their students with saliva tests. And they were just coughing up and spitting in sterile um, containers. And um, their test was more accurate than the other invasive tests. And so... I said, to, I, I sent all this research to my mother and I said to her, you take this to the doctor and you insist he reads it and show him, you know, in, in a kind way. So what we did, we started praying because in two days she had to go for this test. So, so we started praying and within a day or so, um, and that she got a call from another friend of hers, um, called the doctor and the doctor said, oh, there was a lady that came a day ago and insisted not to take the invasive test and I've changed the test. You can take a saliva test. (laughs) Like we prayed and we got all the research and then it was just such a miracle. And um, my mother, she, she sent the information also to the doctor and then when she went to the doctor, I think he was maybe a little bit embarrassed or something. But they, there was just rows and lines of people coming for these tests. And so he said, oh, well, and she said, well, this person got the wrong test. And so they just quickly pushed her into the room and said, oh, well, you can take this test. And so she said, well, what about the other people? So they said, oh, well, they can take other tests as well. And um, so then they just kind of, my mom said, can you please give me the papers? that I took the test. And so they just said, oh, no, don't worry. We'll just um, send it to the hospital. But they just shunted it out there as fast as possible. And um, But when my mother got to a hospital for the surgery, which was yesterday, um, the doctor said, oh, they were really amazing people. And not, they weren't wearing masks or anything like that. Their whole, the whole place was all sterile with... Um, special 
sterile, um, like, air cleaners. But the whole place was completely unbelievable, she said. And, yeah, they said, oh, no, we don't need any masks here. And we don't use masks in surgery either because we have another system that we use. And, anyway, it was just fascinating how we prayed so much. I had, like, 200 people praying for my mother and through all the prayers and everything, my mom just, they said, wow, we can't believe your, your arm is healed so fast. She's 82 years old. And so there were so many miracles that we, and I'm just sharing this because I really believe that God honors our prayers and our investigation, like you were saying. Thank you. Thank you for that testimony. And, and that's, that's the kind of exposure to use the word exposure, I think that is helpful and healing. But the kind that the serpent was using was the opposite of the healthy kind of exposure that exposes the truth. Mm-hmm. And hopefully next week we can finish the chapter. Thank you so much. I hope it's not a problem if I butt in on Nancy's screen. No, no. We appreciate having you. So blessed. Uh, by everybody's comments yes. and all the all the many places in scripture and the amazing personal sharing i was really blessed so thank mm-hmm. you all yes thank you yes. i think the the thanks goes to everyone not just one person great experience all right are let's you meet next week after christmas or? i i plan to if anybody's game okay <laughs> sounds good okay So uh, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, I'm going to use a metaphor, bubble over with what we know about you, what we learn about you, how we have come to see you. We ask that our tools for doing this will be sharpened, that our insights will be clear, and that it may be the sealing kind of protection that you get from sealing a jar or sealing a a culture or doing something that protects it from invasion. We pray that uh, we might be sealed with the truth about you so that uh, we are not able to be uh, under delusion and be sidetracked by the enemy. And thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.